0: And and we worship you because you deserve it. Jesus, um, you have been given the name that is above every other name. That it's your name, every uh, knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now as we have this brief time to be in your word, I pray that you speak to us through your spirit that you would quicken our hearts, uh, open our eyes to see you for who you are to see ourselves in light of who you are and to respond with obedience and faith where you're calling us to do that. Um, as we see this story uh, in Acts 19, I pray that we, would, we wouldn't we would be able to disconnect ourselves from, from the content of it, that we'd see in ourselves the need to respond and the many ways that the Ephesian church responded when they came to faith and when you continue to work to refine that faith. And so help us now to... Uh, to be humble uh, before you and before your word and to be hungry for what you want to teach us. I pray that you'd help me now as I, as I preach and and encourage uh, this church, these people that, that I love. I'm grateful for, for your word, how it's been preserved for us and it is living and active and capable now to, to bring about the change that I simply cannot. So would you do your work through your word, for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good to see everybody again. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter 19. You can grab a pew Bible if you don't have your own. I'm not sure what page we're on, but it's in the New Testament. Um, It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. We're in Acts chapter 19. So just real quickly before we dive into our text, we're going to read chapter 19 verses 1 through 20 is where we'll be this morning. Um, One of the, the primary things we talked about as we studied through the book of Acts is... Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is kind of like the thesis statement for the whole book, where Jesus gives a promise and a command all in one. And he says, you're going to receive power from me, and that power is going to enable you to be my witnesses uh, here in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. And so there's a question that kind of comes from that as to what does power look like? like? How do we know that power is prevailing in the life of his people? Like, how would we see power? How would, it, how would it manifest itself? And I would say some of what we might see is going to be present in chapter 19. We're going to see power to preach, power of transformation, and even the power to surrender all things to the Lord Jesus as we seek to follow him. And so let's read Acts 19, uh, verses 1 through 20. We'll read the whole thing, and then we'll go back and make some observations. This is God's word, Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, you have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered, that's Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, Asia Minor, which is current-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver so the word of the lord continued to increase and prevail mightily all right so as we go back to the beginning in verse 1 we have this one verse that kind of shoots us backward just a little bit to give us a little bit of context for where we are in the story and in paul's missionary journey so apostle paul used to be a persecutor christian has come to faith and now in this section of the book of acts he becomes the primary missionary to take the gospel to the world and so he's making these, these missionary journeys largely around the mediterranean And so last week the section we covered was kind of the end of the second missionary journey and today marks really the beginning of the third missionary journey so Paul landed in Ephesus after Corinth, and when he landed there, you might remember, it's like he got off the boat with his friends Priscilla and Aquila, and he left them there. He went to preach in the synagogue just briefly, and then they stayed there while he went all the way across the Mediterranean to the the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, and then the Gentile Christian church in Antioch to report all that God was doing. then he kind of loops back around the north side of the Mediterranean, kind of back toward Ephesus to encourage all the churches and believers in places like Galatia and Phrygia. So now he's going to loop all the way back around to Ephesus, and that's kind of where we find ourselves here. So his friend Apollos, who we talked a little bit about last week, mighty in the scriptures, has gone back to Corinth. And you see the impact of his ministry as you read the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, He's preaching there, and he's faithful There, but so he comes to Ephesus and he finds who he thinks are disciples. It seems that they may not actually be Christians, based on what happens next. But he has this interaction with them, kind of a little bit of a strange interaction that takes a little bit of explanation, and we'll spend a little bit of time here. But we're going to spend most of our time at the end of the section we just read. So, so disciples um, need more accurate instruction about the Holy Spirit. So they said, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We don't even know about it. We only know the baptism. Of John, And so John the Baptist in the New Testament and the gospel accounts is this forerunner for Jesus. He's kind of like a lineman running a path for a a running back. He just forges a path for Jesus. So everything that he does, everything that he says is an effort to forge a path in the human heart, as it were, and in the land for Jesus to come after him. This one that he says, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. Then he speaks of his baptism, John the Baptist's baptism in this way in Matthew chapter 3. It gives us a little bit more context for what's happening in Ephesus. John said this, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Repentance is to turn away from sin and turn to God. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there was a similar but different work that Jesus was going to do, namely through his spirit, he was going to baptize true believers with the power of the Holy Spirit. So John's baptism kind of paved the way for Jesus's baptism, as it were, that came with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So these believers, they, they learn this, they get baptized, and Paul lays his hands on them, and they begin to speak in tongues, which... Our position scripturally is that tongues is a, is a known language that you can speak in that isn't your native language. There's some debate on that. We'll save that for some other day. Um, but they speak in languages, and they prophesy. They, f- they foretell the word of God in different ways. It's a mark of conversion and saving faith in the New Testament. So there's a whole lot of tangled mess in this stuff right here. And I don't want to spend our time getting lost in the weeds or taking rabbit trails, but I just want to comment on a couple of things. Because some of what's happened is like with a text like this and maybe a couple others, there's been whole theological positions about the nature of true saving faith or conversion that have kind of bounced from this text. And it's something like this, is that there would be kind of two experiences that a believer would have. You come to faith in Jesus, you'd be converted inwardly in your heart, and then you'd have this second experience where you'd receive the Holy Spirit. Many refer to it as a second blessing. As a church, we take exception to that, as as the way in which God manifests his spirit to the believer. So there are moments in the book of Acts where certainly like this one, where there's a unique manifestation of the power of God in a moment on a particular person or group of people back in Acts chapter 10 with the Gentile church. There's this unique outpouring, anointing of his spirit where there's miraculous signs, tongues prophesying. And there's whole churches and movements of churches that also kind of take tongues, speaking in tongues, to us is a known language for some it's it's just a linkage of syllables it's like a spiritual language it doesn't isn't an actual language but some have said that's the actual sign of true conversion so if you don't have that experience then you're not actually you don't have the spirit of god you're not truly converted so we would take exception with that we don't think that's biblical what happens here is certainly a manifestation of the spirit of god and there's true conversion that's really shown by what comes next not by the tongues and prophesying. Okay, so in verses eight through 10, so what happens to Paul? So he baptizes these would-be disciples. They didn't seem to have the spirit of God. Now they do. He goes with them to the synagogue. And much like his pattern, he loved the Jewish people. You've heard us talk about that probably. Paul was a Jew. He became a Christian, so he's a Jewish Christian. So he goes into the synagogue because he loves the Jewish people. Synagogue was like the church for the Jews, and he essentially walks in and basically says, everything that you're reading, everything you're teaching is found in Jesus. Like the answer is found in Christ. He's the one you're talking about. And so he would seek to persuade and reason and teach the Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was the Christ that they were looking for. And in fact, they were looking for. And many still are still looking for the coming Messiah. But Paul went to preach, did so for three months And much like what happened in Corinth, you see that there was resistance to the message. And so look in verse 9. It says, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them. So Luke notes that stubbornness gave way to unbelief, which ultimately led to outright opposition to Christ. And it's good to kind of take note of the way in which sin kind of progresses in the life of a person. Um, I think you'd say it this way. It's like we don't stand on neutral ground. Like there's a way in which in the Christian life, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. If you're not moving toward God, you're probably in some measure moving away because we're not passive spiritually in that sense. We're not just neutral. And so there's a way in which sin has a decaying effect in the life of a person. I think you see this here. It's like stubbornness gives way to unbelief. Unbelief to outright opposition to Jesus and I think you see that in different places, like Galatians 6 talks about it. It's like the if you sow to the, the flesh, you reap corruption. If you can envision something that's rusting, it's a little bit like that picture. At first it gets wet, and then it slowly, slowly begins to kind of deteriorate. And there's a picture in Hebrews chapter 3 that talks about the, the way in which the body of Christ is a protective covering to guard us against that hardening effect of sin. And here's a, just a brief mention of that text, Hebrews 3.13. It says, exhort one another every day. So you get to hear this as us, like this is coming to us. Exhort one another, speak truth to one another every day. Why? As long as it's still called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you've heard us talk about it, we'll continue to talk about it. Like we desperately need each other. Encourage one another, exhort one another day by day, as long as it's still called today, as long as you still have breath lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because sin will have a hardening effect. It will always be that way. It will always move in degrees of hardening the heart of an individual if it's not addressed. And we'll see how it's addressed here in just a moment. So Paul withdrew from them, somewhere to in Corinth. In Corinth, he looked at him and said, Hey, your blood be upon your heads. I've given you the message. You've rejected it. I'm moving on to the Gentiles. But because he still loves the Jewish people, it's almost like he can't help but go into the synagogues and just... Keep knocking on that door, but they still resist. They begin to speak evil of the way, meaning Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father, but through him, they begin to speak ill of Jesus, the way. And so Paul goes to this new place, this new platform for ministry. It's kind of interesting, because he goes to this hall of Tyrannus. We don't know really much at all about this man Tyrannus. He seems to be like an academic, maybe a philosopher but he had a school and in the middle of the day, which is the hottest time of day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. it seems, Paul every single day for two years would, would teach, he'd preach, he'd persuade, he'd reason in the hall of Tyrannus, speaking about the Lord Jesus, commending people to believe in him. Reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus And this continued on for two years. And he's like a, it's like Bible beast mode. I don't know what to call this. Like, it's hundreds of hours. He's just constantly pouring himself out. Like, every day for two years. For potentially five hours each day. Preaching, teaching, persuading, reasoning about Jesus. Remarkable labor. And it has remarkable fruit. If you can imagine this, it says all the residents of Asia, this Asia Minor, current day Turkey. Imagine just for a second, we have capacity to think about Wilmington and its size. Imagine for a second there was a, there was a preacher that five hours a day for two years straight was preaching, reasoning through the scriptures, speaking about Jesus in such a way that every single resident heard the gospel. That's what happened here. All of Turkey knew about Jesus, had heard the word of God. This is a remarkable fruit. If we don't just camp there and think about it for a second, we don't really understand the scope. But this is remarkable labor from a Jesus-loving man. And it bears remarkable fruit that all the residents, both Jews and Greeks of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. In the face of resistance, Paul persisted. Even though some people spoke ill of Jesus, Paul couldn't help but speak of the hope of Jesus. Like he continued on. And that's the example we should emulate as well. And we we know from the scriptures, and maybe, maybe there's someone in this room, you need to know this, is we aren't saved by anything that we do. The only thing we bring to the table is our helplessness and our sin. That we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. Ephesians 2 is probably the clearest example or statement of that. That you're not saved by any works that you have done, lest anyone should boast. But you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Right? So we're not saved by works. But here's the the deal for the Christian. We're not saved by works. But once we are saved, once we're part of the family of God, we have a spirit within us, make no mistake about it, we work hard for God. Like we labor to make him known. Like Paul did, like we, we do what we can while we're here to, to make much of him. And there is a fruitful labor that the people of God should be engaged in once they come to saving faith in Jesus. So, so don't disconnect because of an aversion to works-based salvation, the works that should come because of salvation. All of us should labor. And Paul even said, as long as I'm here in this life, as long as I'm not with Christ and I'm here in this world, it means fruitful labor for me. And even as he talked about the grace of God at work within him, he said, as he's defending himself to the Corinthian church, his apostleship, he says, I "I labored more than anybody. I worked harder than the rest. Like he worked hard, but he said, but not me, the grace of God within me. So grace enables the people of God to work really hard at what we do, specifically to work for the sake of his name in this world. Alright. So but throughout history, man has rejected the way God has provided and sought some alternative way, right? This is the fallen nature of man. Some mechanism by way we can in our eyes achieve spiritual power or breakthrough or pave a path to God. Man has always sought, when rejecting Jesus, to just forge some other supposed way. And the sons of Sceva give us a little bit of a living example of this. So look back at verse, uh, verse 11. So God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Like so much so, if you can picture Paul, he had, a, he had a job, he was a tent maker. If you can picture him wiping his brow with a handkerchief, having aprons in his shop. And so these things that had touched Paul's body physically were being taken around and given to people who were sick and had evil spirits and they would be healed just by touching the apron or the, the handkerchiefs. It's remarkable. It's kind of wild. What makes it really interesting is like Ephesus, which we'll see in just a second, is like a remarkably superstitious kind of occult sort of place. And God in his unique sense of humor or providence decides to use like traveling handkerchiefs that have touched the, the apostle to heal people of diseases and evil spirits. It's really an interesting picture. But ultimately, we'll see that it's surrender to Jesus that gives the ultimate breakthrough and victory. But what do we see from these sons of Sceva? Well, they seem to see Paul's ministry. So it's so significant, like extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. So if you can imagine, let's put ourselves in Wilmington again, just contextually, right? You hear about, like you're these guys and you're doing some ministry work, like you're some holy man on the scene, don't know if they were doing this before Paul came into town or not, but Paul's doing this remarkable work. And so God is accomplishing crazy things through the hand of Paul. And so it seems like what they want to do is draw upon what Paul was doing for their own ministry. So they were itinerant Jewish exorcists. What does that mean? Is that they were guys who were traveling around, they were Jewish, and they were trying to cast out evil spirits and demons from people. It's an interesting job, right? Anyone want to sign up for that one? Itinerant exorcists. You'll see the, many of those around. But they were they were traveling around trying to do this work. And so what they end up doing, they see the work of Paul. And what they do is they, they travel to places where there are evil spirits in people. And they say, we adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out of this person. And what's the response of the evil spirit in this moment? Like, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul but who the heck are you? I don't know you. And I think one of the things we have to learn from this, and just hear me when I say this, is like your bondage can never be broken through borrowed faith. Like you can never draw upon spiritual power that someone else possesses to give yourself freedom. Whether it be your grandparents, whether it be your pastor, whether it be your parents, your siblings, your bondage will never be broken through borrowed faith, ever. Your bondage can only be broken through personal surrender. And at some level, these sons of Sceva <clears throat> were trying to draw upon the power of Jesus without knowing Jesus. I adjure you, in the name of this Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. They didn't know him. They didn't know Jesus. They just knew Paul. They knew there was some result coming from Paul's ministry, but they they wanted to benefit from Jesus without knowing him. And you can't draw upon his power without knowing him personally. Someone else's faith isn't sufficient for you to benefit from his power. Spiritual forces can only be overcome by spiritual power. And these guys are absolutely demolished by this guy. So we know Jesus. We recognize Paul. As for you, we don't know you. We don't recognize you. So the man, via the evil spirit, comes upon them all, seemingly, and he takes off their clothes and beats them up. It's like I don't know by what standard you judge someone has lost a fight. But if you come in with clothes and you leave naked, like you've lost. I don't I don't care. I don't care what you're looking at. Like these guys were demolished in this fight. But what's interesting is like this becomes like this moment that reverberates in the city. So everybody hears about this. This dynamic, how the sons of Sceva, who I'm guessing, this is just conjecture for me, people saw them as some sort of maybe mystical sort of holy men. They were Jewish. They had a spiritual bent to them because they were trying to cast out evil spirits. So I'm assuming they had some allure in the city. So the next thing people know is they've heard them trying to cast out some spirit in the name of Jesus, whom Paul knows, and all of a sudden they're running around naked and beaten up. Like, like you understandably, you might hear that story. And so what happens next? Well, not, everybody, not, not only does everybody hear about it, let's go to the text real quick, verse 17. It says, and this became known, that event we just read, to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So everybody hears about what happened to these sons of Sceva. They got their tails whooped by the man with the evil spirit. Fear falls down, and the praise of Jesus goes up. That's what happens right on the heels of this. It has a significant impact in the whole city. It became known to everyone. So they saw the power of evil and the destruction it brings, like in the lives of not only the man with the evil spirit, but also him coming upon these exorcists They saw the utter inability of these holy men to cast out evil. So They saw the presence of evil, the destruction it brings, the inability of man to, to forge some way to cast out evil. And ultimately what happened is it simultaneously drove them to Jesus. And here's where I want to pause just for a minute and try to consider just for a second the way this might apply to our lives. Undoubtedly in your life, unless you're really young in this room, You've, you've seen examples of how sin has brought about destruction in your life, in your family's life, your friend's life, in the world. Like you've seen examples of that. How sin going unaddressed, unconfessed, unrepented of just absolutely destroys people's lives. So we've seen it. Like we've seen the, the power of evil to destroy And I would even say this, I think most of us, by God's grace, and this is a work of God's grace, know that we are completely unable to drive out that evil from our own hearts or from the world. There's got to be a power beyond ourselves. And the question is, what do you do with those? You see evil, you see its destructive force, you feel the inability to do anything about it, so where do you go? Are you, I mean, are we like the sons of Skiva that somehow, like, we've been deceived into thinking that just association with Christian things is enough to drive out evil spirits. I know a guy, my grandparents were, my parents were, my friend is, a Christian, I go to a Christian school, university, I was baptized, like, whatever you want to, f- just association with Christian things isn't sufficient enough to drive out spiritual evil. Only surrender can do that. Are we trusting our own kind of religious activity like these guys? Trying to drive out evil by our own mechanism and personality and energy? Or like the rest of this group that we're about to see, are we going to surrender? We're going to personally surrender to Jesus, the one who was extolled. This is kind of where it starts at the end of verse 17. Fear falls. The name of Jesus is extolled. We don't use that word very much. It's like magnified. The name of Jesus is made really big in this moment. So his reputation grows while the sons of Sceva diminishes. Jesus is lifted up. So what seems to happen is there's a real conversion that takes place in the hearts of many people in Ephesus. That the name of Jesus is magnified in their lives. And so let me start with this. There is a first and primary confession that takes place for you to become a Christian. And it sounds much like what's said in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's the king, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved from the judgment owed to you because of your sin. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So Jesus is magnified. His name is large. He is Lord. There's a supreme confession that Jesus is king of my life, and I surrender to him. But what happens is after that supreme first confession, our lives are filled with thousands of secondary, but still important, confessions. Where we agree with God that certain things we are engaged in and doing, certain behaviors, words, attitudes, postures toward God and toward other people, that these things are wrong. To confess is to agree with God that something is wrong. So if you come to faith in Jesus through that first confession, your life is filled with thousands of secondary confessions. And you know what you find on the other end of those confessions as a believer? A faithful advocate who always lives to make intercession for you, who says that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So in those thousands of moments where we fail, that we have a faithful advocate who's willing to forgive still. Praise be to God. So Jesus' name is extolled and now what happens next? As we kind of finish off, this is where we'll finish our time. Verse 18. Look what happens next. So primary confession takes place, name of Jesus is magnified in the hearts of these people, and then verse 18, also what happens? A secondary thing that happens, important but secondary. Also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, these books, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So they confessed. These believers came. The assumption is they came to other people. They came to the, the community of believers. They came to the leadership in the church. They didn't just go out in the field, take their book with them, bury it in the ground and confess to God. That would have been a start, but I think it's incomplete. There's actually a picture in this scripture that our life together, lived as a family of faith, involves us confessing sin to one another. I know It's intimidating. But an environment where we recognize that every single person in this room is in process, we don't have any grace graduates at all, none of us, that we can actually go to one another in a, an environment of safety and health and confess sin. I am struggling in this way, and I recognize that part of God's protective design is for me to involve other people to help me overcome this struggle. I think you see that here. I don't think I'm forcing it into the story. They came confessing, divulging their practices. This wasn't just some one priest They came confessing, they came to one another. And when they came and brought these books, do you see what it says? They did it in the presence of all, in the sight of all, at the end of, well, the middle of verse 19. So there's this confession. And this is a pattern in scripture that we confess our sins to one another. James 5 is an example. It's talking about finding Physical healing. If you're sick, call the elders that they'll pray for you. And it's mingled with kind of spiritual and physical healing. And James says this, is therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And I can personally testify to the fact that right after becoming a believer in college for 20 plus years, I have had men in my life, weekly, weekly who I've had the ability and the blessing of being able to be transparent about struggles and things I need to be accountable for. And if we can operate as a church, understanding that we're all in process, understanding that we've been forgiven much, and that grace is what we give one another in their process as well, there's a safe place, a right place to grow in godliness. We don't have to try to keep things in the shadows, and that's our propensity, right? It's been that way from the beginning, from the garden. We're exposed in our sin, and we want to run into some other place, namely creation, to try to cover up our vulnerability and sin, and God says, i am given you what you need, and the people of God, come and confess, divulge what the struggle is, and if you have questions on what that looks like, then I encourage you to come to me, I'd love to talk to you more about it, but there's accountability in the context of community, Ephesus was filled with occult activity, and sorcery and black magic, if you will. So these people brought books that they used in the magic arts, and we don't really know exactly what that is, but here's a little bit of a sense of what it might have involved. Ephesus was actually famous for having charms and like relics and spells. So the culture and the climate of the city was one where it elevated magic. So you quite literally have books of magic spells. So these books are what we're talking about here. So people who are engaged in the occult, black magic, came with their books of spells, and they brought them confessing, hey, we've been involved in this, and we see now this is not from God, and we need to confess it, and we need to take care of it. And it says something about the value of these books in the culture. Did you see what they did? They, they counted up all the books. This wasn't just a couple people. This is a, like a droves of people came with these magic spells these books of magic spells brought them and they counted the value of them. I don't think Luke is wasting words, just filling pages. For some reason, they counted the value of the books and it measured 50,000 pieces of silver. So, give you some context. The estimation of this, a piece of silver in Ephesus was probably a drachma, which is worth one day's wages. So, people have estimated it's probably a million to five million dollars we're talking about here. This is a substantial, substantial amount of money that they laid on the fire, as it were, to be burnt and taken out of their lives. But they did it in the presence of all. It's a little bit like they're saying, I'm acknowledging this struggle, the sin in my life, I'm committing to put it away completely. And notice what they didn't do. If I could just be frank about this, I think we're all guilty of this in some ways. They didn't, they didn't see the book as a source of temptation and struggle and divulge it, confess it, say, here's the source of my struggle, and then take it back home and put it on the shelf in the closet, thinking they'd be strong enough to face it the next day. That is not what they did. What they do? They destroyed it. And this resonates with what Jesus says to do when we when we sin, when there's something that causes us to stumble. He says, if it's your eye, pluck out your eye. If it's your hand, cut off your hand. Not literally. It's hyperbole, but it demonstrates that Jesus takes very seriously the call to holiness. He's like, take extreme measures. Whether, things that might even seem like unreasonable if it means it's going to take out the source of temptation in your life. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, like we we often don't take sin as seriously as we should. Now by raise of hands, how many of you have some piece of clothing in your closet that you'll probably never wear again but you've kept around for years okay <laughs> I thought I'd see that most of us do for some reason some sociological phenomenon like we think that clothes from 5, 10, 20 years ago will just somehow we'll have a need for it in some moment later on so we hold on to it right these old clothes that used to be comfortable at some point in our lives used to be fashionable even you know them when they come out if they're not fashionable for sure but It's a little bit like Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Paul writes a letter back to this church years later. And one of the things he talks about is like if the gospel is real to you, if you've come to Jesus, you've been saved, you've been rescued by him, one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to put off your old clothes. He says it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And this is something I said when we were preaching through Ephesians. Is there's something about like the old clothes? Like there's a uniform, as it were, associated with the old man before you knew Jesus. But here's what I'd say about those clothes. They're a little bit sticky. They have some staying power in the sense that they there's a residual comfort that they have that we want to hold on to. Put them on the shelf, maybe. But we just want to kind of put on the old rags for whatever reason, because of our continual struggle with sin in this life. And I would just submit to you, is that's, that's, not, the, that's not the resurrected life. What the resurrected life would say is like, those clothes don't fit you anymore. In fact, they smell. They smell like Death. Why would you put them on? They don't belong to you anymore. Like, they're not fitting for the new man. Like, why would you put them on? And I don't think we look at sin and struggle that way. We don't look at it and be like, you know what? That's not me anymore. That doesn't fit me. It doesn't fit my new manner of life. That's not consistent with the resurrection. That's consistent with the grave clothes. Those are grave clothes to me. I think we do well to think more of our struggle with sin and, and in those contexts than, you know, I think I'll be okay and I'll just kind of keep it around. It's not what they did. They, they threw them on the fire. And some of us may be hanging on to those old clothes. But they counted the cost as well. You know, as we look at the, we'll finish with this. As you think about these Ephesian believers, like they're bringing this million, five million dollars worth of stacks of books, burning them in the presence of all. There's some reason why God led Luke who wrote this book, to put the value of these books in here. And I would submit some of the reason is this, that there's, there's a cost counted to following Jesus. There's, a, there's an issue of worth that's present in this text. Maybe it's something like this. If you're an Ephesian believer with this particular, in this moment, with these books, you might have been faced with something like this. Is this book more valuable to you than Jesus? You can sell this thing on the street. It has a lot of value. You can go make money on it. And in that sense, perpetrate additional evil and struggle for somebody else. But it echoes to me something that Paul says to the Philippian church. He talks about his own reputation. He's like, hey, there's a whole lot of things I could count as gain to me based on my reputation, based on my Education, my pedigree, I'm from the right tribe, done the right things, I'm zealous for the law. It's like, but whatever I counted to my gain, I lost for the sake of Christ. He goes on to say, it's like, I count it all, loss. I'll lose everything. For the sake of knowing Jesus. In view of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, there's a value assessment in the heart of a believer is like, is this really where my value lies? Do I want to pursue this more than I want to pursue Jesus? And I think the the Ephesian believers are a helpful example to us of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, for whose sake we've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that we might gain Christ. And the last thing that we see is like all of this, like every single part of what we just talked about, it paves a way for the word of God to go forward with power. If you're a Christian in this room, I believe that even if it's a small part of us, part of us that longs to be used by God in this world. Like we want to be a fruitful vessel for God. He's put a spirit within us, not just so we can enjoy our own salvation, but to perpetrate, to push outward the, the hope of the gospel in this world that desperately needs to hear it. And there's something in us that should get excited about the fact that there's a way in which the door is swung open for the word of God to prevail in the world. Maybe think of it this way. is when the spirit of God prevails in the lives of God's people, that the word of God prevails in the world. I think that's what you see here. You see that the Ephesian believers submitted, surrendered to God, taking care of the the various barnacles of sin in their lives, casting them off. And what's the fruit? The word of God freely flows into the world. I would submit at least partly due to their testimony and the consistency of their lives lived for Jesus. I think we do well to follow their example. That where the spirit of God prevails within his people, the word of God will prevail in the world. That it'll be faithfully preached, that every single one of us will be fully surrendered to his work and his reign. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. We'll sing one last song. Why don't you bow your head just for a second and I ask you just to consider if there was a twinge of conviction maybe about former manners of life that you've been holding on to, or things you know you need to confess, divulge and put away. Make today the day. Jesus, uh, we don't have words to express thanksgiving that's sufficient enough um, to you for what you've done for us. Uh, You became our sin when you hung on the cross uh, so we could become your righteousness. You've withheld from us what we deserve which is mercy, you've given us everything that we don't deserve, and that is grace. And so we are grateful, and we have life because of you, and we have hope for this life and the life to come because of you. Uh, We have reason to sing because of you, and God, I pray that we'd have motivation uh, to be people who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel because, Lord Jesus, what you've done for us. Help us to be a faithful community of believers who do confess sin to one another, to find victory and protection from the various things in this world that attack. We don't live in neutral territory, that we are facing a battle in this world, and we have an enemy who's crafty and consistent and persistent against us. So we, uh, we pray for uh, diligence to stay alert, and we pray that our hearts would stay Affectionate toward you, God, that that we would we love you more tomorrow than we do today. Thank you for loving us so well. Uh, thank you that you you have demonstrated your love, and that while we were sinners, that Christ died for us. Help us to in our lives to see the Spirit of God prevail on us, that your Word would prevail in the world. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's go and stand. We'll sing one last song together. Yeah. Often when we read in.